Welcome to Recovered1440.com, Cabin Fever, episode 9. My name is Bobby and I'm an addict. This is a podcast for people who might be in recovery, who might want to listen to a message of hope, faith and courage. It might be for someone who's relapsed and who's looking to get back into the rooms and the meetings. Or it might be for someone who might want to stop taking drugs or drinking and they realise that they can't. Or when they do manage to stop, they realise that they can't stay stopped. So if any of that relates to you, then you're in the right place. The aim of this podcast is to encourage anyone, or at least one person with any fucking luck, to try out the 12-step fellowship and embark on a new way of life, just like myself and my friends. The fellowship that we're part of is not allowed with any sect, denomination, religion, organisation, politics, or any of that bullshit. It has no opinions on outside topics and wishes to remain anonymous at the level of media and press. But all that said, if you want what we've been given, I'm sure you can Google the drug of your choice, followed by meetings near me, and you'll be greeted with a bunch of results. So now I've all that out of the way, thank fuck, I'm joined by a friend of mine, someone who's enjoying the gifts of recovery, who's got a powerful message of what his life was like, what he's done and what his life's like today. And so without further ado, I shall hand the podcast over to you. Welcome to Recovered 1440, Callum. How are you, mate? Cheers for having me, Bob. <laughs> that was a long, drawn-out fucking <sighs> process. Do you know what? It's nice to be here. Thank you very much. Nice to have it's you. It's nice to be here. This room holds a lot of a lot of good memories from here. That's right. interesting. Yeah, it's beautiful. Of course it does. It's beautiful to be here. Um, sitting there listening to you, do you know, saying that. People <laughs> are still out there suffering. Mm. One day I didn't have a clue what this stuff was. Mm. You know, bent up, angry, lost. I didn't know who I was for a long time. Mm. A long time and and the way you said that there that's gonna that's gonna hit someone you know Absolutely. that will hit someone out there that needs this stuff but right let's go back to the start <laughs> let's take get it into right it. back let's get take it right it. back childhood <clears throat> i had a loving childhood on my mum's part to be honest my mum was full of love um couldn't have done enough for me mm. my dad suffered with this stuff my dad was an alcoholic him and my mum split up when I was about one. So for me, my dad, my dad as a presence was never was never consistent in my life. No. Um, I kind of see him school holidays. He'd come and get me sometimes, and my dad was never right. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he was never right. Um, <clears throat> and, and and going through this stuff now, realizing what I've been through. You know, I understand why I weren't right. But at the time, I just thought my dad was was a clown. <laughs> he was the joker he was the one that would always make me laugh but without realise he was broken as well do you mm. know he didn't know himself mm. he didn't know himself he was broken <clears throat> but yeah so they split up at a young age I was always a bit lost if I'm honest because that Jekyll and Hyde that is talked about talked about in the um, in the programme for me was apparent at a young age you know because when I was with my mum I was very much a soft, gentle, kind-hearted person, mm. and I'd go to my dad's and I was just full of this fear mm. and anxiety because I didn't know what dad I was going to mm. get on any given day. So 
So I always had that that thing of, of changing who I was, you know, fitting in that chameleon effect, fitting in wherever mm. I was in any, in any situation. Um, fast forwarding, that that was my childhood. I'd always go to my dad's, he'd be pissed. I'd go home, and I'd think I was a totally different person when I went home to my mum, and then it'd take me a couple of days to be the mum or the Callum that my mum wanted. Mm. And I'd always have to mold back to that. Um, at the time, I thought that was normal. I thought everyone done that. I generally thought everyone done that, but but they don't. <laughs> and I know that today. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna fast forward because I I really want to touch a lot of recovery at this. Mm. You know, I think yeah. that's, that's why I'm here. That is ultimately that's why I'm sitting here today. If it weren't for this stuff, I'd be dead, and I know that. Mm. Um, fast forward when I was 13, my dad passed away. He passed away from multiple organ failure due to this stuff. Didn't want to accept help did not want to accept help. He knew if he carried on drinking, he was going to die, and he carried on drinking, mm. knowing that that was going to happen. Um, and for a long time, I beat myself up over that. I thought, oh, he could have saved himself for me and my sister. Yeah. And he could have been around, but he chose not to. You know? And it's not, like I say, it's not until I, until I learned about this stuff that I realised why that decision was so hard for him. Mm. I first started smoking weed I first picked up a drug, which was weed, when I was when I was eight years old. My dad used to get me to smoke solid okay. in front of his mates as a party trick. Um, ludicrous, you know. Looking back on that as well, like putting your kids through that, but to, again, because he was always drunk, mm. he didn't have no feel like that. Like he thought that was normal as well. We must have, you know. Um, started smoking weed properly when I was when I was twelve. My dad would send me home with bags of weed that he'd give me and say, oh, take this with you, take this home. I didn't have a fucking clue what I was doing with it. Not a, not a clue at all. When I was at ears, I'd smoke it in a pipe. And when I got home, I didn't have a pipe. And I was thinking, oh, what do I do with this fucking weed? I remember once when I was about 13, I tried to eat a bit of weed. And I was like, well, what's this like? Is this, is this doing anything for me? Didn't really feel anything fucking from it. <coughs> Uppers is where it all started for me. When I was 15, I started doing MCAT, Methadrone, Meow Meow, there's a lot of different names for it, but that was Massadrone. And I st when I f the first time I'd ever done that, I was sitting on a school playing field and I'd done it, and it was like truth serum for me. I started <laughs> telling this geezer that I was hanging around with that I fancied his missus. <laughs> all sorts of mad stuff happened, and, mm -mm. and I didn't want that night to end. I did not want that night to end. Typical addict behaviour, the lead up to doing it, I'm saying I've done it loads of times before, yeah I'm fucking an expert at doing this drug and I've never fucking touched mm. it before, again wanted to fit in, I needed people to think yeah this dude knows what he's talking about, I didn't have a clue, mm. um, loved it, I run with that stuff for years and I've done it for years and it got, I'll be honest and I've got to be honest doing mm. this, I fucking loved it. <laughs> I did love it. And that's mm. why I wanted to do it all the time. It gave me yeah. a confidence and an ego push that I needed. <coughs> I could talk to anyone. I could go anywhere. And life just felt constantly good. I didn't worry about this fitting in anymore. Yeah, it was beautiful. <laughs> it was. It was. And, and you probably don't think coming onto a podcast like this and people don't think listening to something like this that people are going to say that I love drugs. But yeah, for a massive part of my life, so much. I loved it. Mm absolutely loved it it made me feel a way that i couldn't feel being sober um i first picked up cocaine when i was 16 and the first bit of gear i done was shit it was absolutely dog shit we got it off of some random taxi driver 
<laughs> and at that point, you should know it's already dodgy, but I've done it anyway, and I didn't really feel much from it. Really didn't feel much from it. A couple of months later, I've tried it again, and that was it, I'd arrived. Like, I found my drug that lifted me up. <clears throat> lifted me up and made me feel a way that I've never, ever, ever felt before. Even MCAT didn't make me feel that way. Um, which is, is strange now because like you talk about the rooms and feeling at home in the rooms, that's mm. how them drugs made me feel. Yeah. I was at home tonight. Yeah. I was comfortable in any given situation. Um, I smashed the arse out of it. That's the truth. I smashed the absolute arse out of it. It start with a Thursday night. We'd start with doing a little bit, going to college on a Friday and then I'd come home on a Friday night and we'd all steal money out of our mum's purses, you know, all to chip in and get one ticket mm. and all get a tenner each and that one ticket between four of us and that would last us all night somehow, huh? just yeah. doing little bits, it would last us all night. <laughs> it worked like that in the end. <laughs> it worked like that in the end. Um, and I'll just run with it and people talk about the progression of addiction and I firmly believe the first time I tried an upper I was an addict mm. and I've done it all. Every single drug you can name out there that is an upper I've done, you know. Um, but I'll touch a bit more on that as we go on. When I was 17, I'd already obviously been sniffing gear for a year. Not constantly, but a couple of times a week. Do you know what I mean? Once or twice a week. My Friday session would be up till Sunday. I'd be out missing. Your mum had 25 missed calls, you know what I mean? Everyone worried, thinking, where is he? What's happened to him? And I didn't have no conscience of that stuff, do you know what I mean? Once mm. I put a drug in me, I didn't care what I, about what other people mm. thought. I didn't care if I, I never bought into imagination, oh, they might think I'm dead or, because for them, and I, I think that's massive now, I realise the implications that it put on my family for, for such a long period of time, you know? Um, but yeah, sorry, I lost it there a little bit, you know, because it takes me back, it takes me back to the pain of that, that I put other people through, which, which today, obviously, I'm making a living amends for. <coughs> um, so yeah, when I was, when I was 17, so I smashed gear for a year, like, on and off, it weren't, it weren't consistent, and as soon as I hit 18, I started working on building sites, I got my CSCS card, and I thought, that's it, I'm a man now, I'm a geezer, do you know what I mean? I'm calling everyone darling, you're right, babe, how you doing? <laughs> Thinking I was a dog's bollocks. <laughs> and when you work on site, for me anyway, my own experience is, is it's rife. It's rife with gear, absolutely. Everyone's doing it, it's normal. People are hanging out their asses, people are on come downs, or people are racking it up in the toilets. Um, so for me, it stepped up my addiction a bit. It did step up my addiction a bit, and... Around that time when I was working on site, I got in contact with one of my dad's old pals who was living in London at the time. And I remember going up to stay with him. And I took a bit of gear up with me, thinking that two tickets was going to last me Saturday and Saturday, Friday and Saturday night, and it didn't. Um, and about 10 o'clock on a Friday night, he said, I can get some gear. I was like, oh, sweet, yeah. Mm. Go to the cash point, 200 quid out for 200 quid in his hand. And he come back 10 minutes later with um, 19 fucking 19 bags of crack, a bag of heroin. Right? This is how quick this shit got me. And I always sat there, I'm never going to do crack, I'm never going to shoot up, I'm never going to do this. And although I had never shot up, you know, I, I sat in that, I sat in that crack house and it was a crack house. 
I smoked 19 fucking rocks of crack. And the other brought and the other band of heroin, I smoked it, you know, and I was shit at it, and the geezer was fucking going mental at me. You've done it wrong and all this, and I, I didn't give a fuck because I was in this mad trance of warm, fuzzy, oh, this is just nice, I'm just happy being here, I don't care who's shouting at me. Um, we come down off that, and then I was clucking, I was clucking to get more crack in me, you know, I was like, I can't. I can't fathom why I'm feeling like this, but I need I need more of that stuff. And I cleared up my whole paycheck on that Friday night, and I went home Saturday with my tail between my legs, feeling like a scumbag, and I slept for two days. And after that two days, I couldn't wait to get on it again. Yeah, Could not wait to yeah. get on it again. Um, luckily, I couldn't... I said I couldn't get crap where I lived. I probably could on if I tried hard enough. We all know what that feeling's like. If we want something mm. that much, we're gonna get it. Um, but after that, my my addiction become uncontrollable. It got to the point where I didn't want to use. Mm. But I was using big family events. My mum's birthday, I'd be up in my room smashing myself to bits, and they'd be calling me saying dinner's ready, and I'm like, oh, I can't go downstairs. So I'd create an argument so then I can get out of the house mm. and use without all these people around me nagging me. Mm. Um, and it went on like that for a long time, for a really long time. And I can sit here and speak about war stories and what it's like, but I can sit here now saying at 18 years old I'd smoke crack, I'd smoke heroin, I was sniffing copious amounts of cocaine, I would have tried any given drug you would have put in front of me because I didn't like feeling the way that I felt. You know, and I'd, I'd suppressed that a long time through drugs. I weren't a drinker. No. I weren't. I know today I'm an alcoholic and right. I, if I put a drink in me then I'm going to end up picking up drugs, I know that. But <clears throat> drink was never my, was never my drug of choice. Um, so battered and broken, I was battered and broken for a long time. Um, and then when I hit 20, there was a bit of an intervention with the people I was working for at the time, you know, and they knew something weren't right, I'd be steering in work vans and going missing, I had police sniffer dogs out looking for me, fucking helicopters, and like it was mental, you know, and wrapped up around that stuff, and I still convinced myself from time to time that that's exactly, like, that's, that was my purpose in life, I'm meant to be just a session, right. this, this is this is my arriving. Um, I want to touch on something, I think you know what I'm going to say already, but for the people out there, it was, my using got so bad and so dark that I put myself in these really, really dangerous and volatile situations. Um, and I remember one time I'd, I'd overstepped the mark and it was the same time that, that I stole the work van. I went missing, I had the police looking for me, the police found me. But because I weren't suicidal, the police let me go. Um, and I remember I carried on getting on it that night and I fell asleep in this B&B. <coughs> and I, um, Oh, it's hard to say this, you know. It's hard to say this, but I've got to get out of there how dark it was for me, you know, to, to, for people to realise that this stuff ain't a joke. Mm. Um, and I do. I've been on it for three days at this point, and my body was giving up. Like my body, I, I literally passed out on this bed. I'd not eaten. I'd not drunk anything. I'd had no fluids for three days apart from gills. The only thing that I put inside me. And I fell asleep on this bed, um, and I woke up the next morning. Some geezer went down my trousers, you know, trying to touch me. Yeah, dark, yeah, dark shit, you know. Um, 
horrible stuff. And there's going to be people out there listening thinking, yeah, but it ain't like that for me. It's not been that bad. But I'm telling you, if you if you pick this stuff up and you struggle to put it down, then something's not right mm-hmm. in your life, you know? Don't let it get to the point where stuff like that's happening. If you can nip it in the bud before then, please do it. Because mm-hmm. it's worth it. Um, anyway, one of my mum's friends took me into the rooms, Charlotte took me into the rooms for the first time when I was 20, actually, no, I've missed something. I've done, I've done drug counselling for a year from when I was 20 to when I was 21. Um, which sort of worked. I used to leave counselling tired and, and I really stuck to it for about six months and then in the end, I don't, I don't know really what happened inside of me. Again, I don't really need to know. I'm, I'm an addict, you know, mm. I know that today. But, I picked up drugs again and then I go to counselling off my night and say, I can't do the session today because I'm fucking bolted. Mm. I, need, I need to get out there. And I had the full intention of going to counselling, doing a session and going out after and getting off my night. <laughs> but I walk into the counselling building, her office was on the third floor where we do the therapy and on the second floor there was a, like, a communal toilet for an office box and I was going there, I get to the second floor saying to pull me into the toilet, mm. I'm doing gear, walking up another floor 10 minutes later saying I can't do it. Mm. Because you know, I physically cannot wait to get the drug yeah. inside of me. Yeah. That craving and that obsession. Um, so I've done that for a year. And then I stopped seeing my counsellor because... <laughs> it's mental to say this, but... I stopped seeing my counsellor because I thought... No, she don't know what she's talking about. Because I'm still using drugs, like this ain't helping me. Like, this ain't... Totally disregard for all the stuff that she'd actually helped me with, but I'm like, nah, she don't know what she's talking about. Like, this ain't helping. Um, and then when I was 21, I walked in. I, <coughs> I walked into a meeting. My mum's friend Charlotte took me into a meeting um, up in up in Bishop Stortford, <laughs> and I thought, oh, I'm gonna tell you, what, I'm gonna wear my Stone Island, I'm gonna wear all this designer gear. And, I'm gonna go in there and I'm gonna be the cleanest motherfucker in the room. <laughs> I was wrong. I was wrong. Everyone was wearing suits. Everyone was wearing shiny shoes. Everyone looked fresh. Mm. You know, I thought I was in a business meeting in Central <laughs> London, and I thought, what the fuck is this? Um, and my first meeting, I didn't connect with them. I didn't. I've got to be totally honest. I didn't connect with my first meeting. I thought, no, they're not like me. Mm. I'm different. I'm different to them and I sort of winged it on my own for six months and then um, kept using kept using and it got to a point where my mum said oh we need to, we need to do something now. like this is getting ridiculous mm. an intervention at home that's what that was and I know that today as, as an intervention at home I was ruining everyone in my life do you know mm. my mum was literally so stressed her hair was falling out do you know, the whole relationship between her and my stepdad was an eggshell because she always wanted to try and protect me and and guide me and my stepdad was like, no, he's a bastard. <laughs> <laughs> and I was a bastard, I know that today. Um, he didn't sign up for that, you know. And, and I think we forget a lot about the families and especially stepdads and stepmoms that for my stepdad anyway, I can only speak for myself here. My stepdad got with my mum and and he put up with a lot of mm. shit because he loved that woman, mm. you know, and for years I hated him. Mm. You just don't want me to live my life, you're not my dad, this and that. When the reality is that my stepdad was a bigger dad for me than my real dad, mm. you know, he was a role model. He showed me how to act, how to behave. Um, 
and he was there through some massive, massive parts of my life. And I'll never forget that today, but when we're in the madness, these people are such a big part of our life, we, we don't see it, we're blind to it, you know? We're blind to it. Um, I keep going off and I keep coming back and I'm, I'm realising <laughs> where I am. Um, I went into the rooms at 21 and I really gave this shit a go and it's not shit. No one's going to hear that bit. Um, I went into the rooms at 21 and I found, I found my place in life where I felt where I felt at home, you know? Mm. And it still took me a long time to get, even though I enjoyed being in meetings. Again, chameleon, I'd go into the rooms at first and and I'd say whatever I wanted to hear, you know, I'd nick a bit of what he's saying, a bit of what she's saying, and I'd mix it all together and make everyone think that I'm a recovery genius. <laughs> um, and of course it didn't work, because I weren't open, I weren't honest, and I weren't willing I just, I just wanted to play a big game and act like I knew what I was talking about. And I didn't really have a clue at the start. I really didn't. Um, and I stuck at it. I kept relapsing, kept relapsing, kept relapsing. Um, and then one day after a relapse, I sat in my room and I cried. Do you know? I cried. And I thought, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep doing this now. I'm getting to the point I want to stop and I can't. I've never been in a point in my life where I physically have tried so hard to stop. Been to so many meetings and tried to change as much and it still weren't working. Um, and after that I still had a relapse. Mm. After sitting in my room crying with my head in my hands, done. I still relapsed mm. after that. Um, and my last relapse that time around took me to a caravan in the middle of a field with a pile of gear in front of me. And I believe I had an internal snap there. Because mm. I, I remember, again, putting my head into my hand, crying into this pile of gear, and the gear went to, like, paste. Mm. And I just, I, I went out of that caravan, I was running through these fields, just sobbing my heart out, trying to ring everyone. Um, and my old boss answered the phone, and she went, you all right? And I said, no, mm. I'm done. I'm really done this time. Um, I, went to a, I went to a meeting that night, and I really, after that day, I really gave it my all. Mm. I really gave it 110%. Whatever people told me to do, I'd do. Change careers, I changed friendship groups, I cut everyone off. I literally done everything mm. I possibly could to make sure that I've got this stuff. And I did. You know, I went through the work. I went through the work and I got I got honest as I could at the time. Mm. You know? And it weren't as honest as, as I know I can be today, mm. but at the time it was as honest as I could have got. Um, and it worked for me, you know, it did work for me. I started sponsoring, I started doing more more, more, um, more service and being accountable to other addicts. And it got me for a long period of time. And then COVID hit. Mm. COVID hit when I was about a year, about just, just, over, just over a year clean. Um, yeah, it was just over a year clean, COVID hit. And I thought, oh yeah, yeah, COVID's fucking. I was one of these people that thought COVID was all bollocks. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, I can just get some time off work here. And typical addict, as soon as I feel a little bit ill, I'm like, oh, I've got COVID. <laughs> <laughs> Catastrophizing. Um, 
But yeah, COVID, anyway, COVID hit, so I keep losing my train of thought. Um, COVID hit, and then I sort of thought, oh, well, I don't connect with online meetings. I'm, I like to go and I like to be physical and I like to give people a hug, do you know what I mean? Sit down and, and actually talk to people face to face. And I couldn't do that no more, so I sort of, I sort of pulled myself away from the fellowship and from the meetings. So rather than going on Zoom, I'd say, oh no, what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to do a bit more praying mm. rather than do a yeah, meeting. Yeah, yeah. And that's how it started for me. You know, it was a slippery slope after that. Even though everyone externally loved me and thought I was doing amazing, mm. you know, inside I started to become broken again. Yeah. The cracks started to appear. Um, I met my partner, I had a daughter. Externally, everything was going mm. so well. I had a new job. I was earning good money. I was, I was, I was living a good life, good quality of life. Mm. You know, I had money in my pocket, um, and I, I thought I was happy. Really, really, truly, I thought mm. I was happy. And then in, I was three years sober in the August, and in the October, I picked up a drink mm. on the way home from work. No, no planning, no nothing. No. On the way home from work, I went into a pub and I picked up a drink. And then I picked up a packet of gear. Yeah. And then I picked up another packet of gear. And then I picked up another. And then the next thing, you know, I'm driving to Chelmsford from Brentwood to pick up an eight ball of gear and stay in a hotel mm. and smash myself to bits. You know? Because once I have a drink inside mm. of me, I need to have drugs. Yeah. I don't have a choice in yeah. it. Yeah. I physically don't have a choice in it. Um, yeah. And then after that, I went to one meeting. <laughs> I went to one meeting and tried to convince everyone around me that no, I only needed the one meeting. I know what I'm doing. I'm just gonna, just gonna do it on my own. Mm. Do it on my own. And then that all come unstuck in, in May. End of March. Actually, it was the end of March. It all started to come unstuck and I was working away and I was away from my home life and I could be a totally different person mm. and I'd go to the pub after work and then I'd start getting this feeling of, oh yeah, I want a bit of gear, but I could push it down. And a couple of times I just went to the pub and had a drink and I was like, that's it. Mm. I'm not an addict no more, do you know what I mean? I can happily go and drink at a pub, go and go to sleep. <laughs> ludicrous. It's a ludicrous. The head of an addict mm. It was like the M25 <laughs> at six o'clock going past fucking Heathrow. That's what it's like. Yeah. That is what it's like for me. Um, it's just chaos. And then in quick succession after that, I was doing gear every other day, working away. I was sniffing on a Friday. I was coming home, picking my daughter up from a nursery on a Friday. I was sniffing on a Thursday night, going home on a Friday, absolutely buckled, falling asleep at the steering wheel because mm. I'd had no sleep. Yeah. Um, picking my daughter up from nursery on a Friday night, feeling like an absolute fucking scumbag. Mm. You know, I felt horrible, but I couldn't let anyone else see it because mm. no one else knew what I was doing. Mm. They did, and I found out they did. But in my head, I thought, no, no one knows. You know, you know, because I kept it under wraps. You know. Back myself, I'd done that again two months. Got a massive chunk of money in April. In April this year, and I thought, you know what? I'm just gonna have a blowout. Mm. 
just going to have a blowout. This is it. I'm not going to touch it again after this. Um, I've done a significant amount of money, money that me and my partner needed, mm. you know, money that had already been allocated to pay for certain things. And and in a two-day, two-and-a-half-day session, I, I spunked a lot of it. Mm. Spunked a lot of it. Um, and it led me to sitting in a hotel room, scared, paranoid. I thought the MR5 were coming for me. I mm. thought the FBI were coming for me. The premier, the, the premier wing staff were all in on it. <laughs> all outside the door with the big red keys trying to come through the door. And I'm there in the room thinking a little bit of tissue at the spy or a towel under the door was the best soundproofing in the world. <laughs> no way that they knew. And then two minutes later, I'm thinking, no, they do know actually. Mm. It's not working. Um, and it comes to a head that morning that Saturday morning it comes to a head and I was again I was done you know, I was crying I was done mm. um, and I looked at my phone and on my phone I've got a screensaver with my daughter um, and I looked at my phone and I'd had all these missed calls hundreds of missed calls mm. hundreds of texts I hadn't replied to and I thought I can't do this no more still had gear on me you know and I thought well, I can't do this no more and I wanted to die that's the truth mm. no matter how I felt in that exact moment I wanted to die um, and thank thank fuck for my high power mm. you know because that day I ended up finding my mum mm-hmm. and my mum kind of got me from the hotel and I started to rebuild stuff you know on that Monday I went to a meeting and I got into that meeting I'll be honest. When I first come back into the rooms, I didn't, I didn't feel safe, mm. you know, because my head was fucked. Yeah. My head really was fucked still. Um, and I, I kept going back. I done what was suggested, you know. People put their arm around me, you know. People would hug me and they'd say, "You're gonna be alright. You're gonna get this stuff. All you've got to do is keep coming back to the meetings." Um, and that's what I done. Mm. I kept going back. I got myself a sponsor. And I got myself another sponsor. And I really gave 110% to this stuff. Mm. Like my life depended on it, because my life did depend on mm. it. <coughs> done the work. I've done every single little detail that my sponsor told me to do. I've done it. Mm. You know, I had to do it. It was either that or death for me. Relapse, obviously. Relapse is the only other option apart from doing recovery, but for me, relapse means death. Mm. Because I know it will only end up one way for me, whether it's now. If I relapse now, I'm, I can guarantee within a year, two years, I'm mm. going to kill myself. Yeah, right. um, and I've done everything that suggested, and you know, my life's beautiful today. <laughs> my life is absolutely beautiful. <coughs> and it, about a month after I've come back, I really started to notice the the, the effects of, of recovery on myself. Mm. You know, I started, I changed again, I changed everything, I changed career. I sat in the job that I was doing. I changed everyone I was speaking to again. Mm. And I wrapped myself around people who had what I wanted. Mm. And I'd look at people in the rooms and I think he's happy. Why oh, is he's all this shit going on his life? Why is he happy? Mm. Why is he smiling? Why is he <laughs> laughing and joking? Do you know what I mean? And, and I know today because he was at peace with himself. You know, and he mm. was happy with with who he was. <laughs> <laughs> and that's me today. <laughs> that is me now. Um, so yeah, I got through the steps, and as a, the further I went through it, 
just like the thrill I've got with myself mm. to talk about step one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, step one, I knew I was an addict. Mm. You know, I really knew wholeheartedly that I was an addict. Um, step two, I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. I knew that it could because I'd been mm. clean before. You know, I didn't have to relearn a lot of this stuff because yeah. I not had the foundations there when I'd been clean. Um, step three, I live in step three every day, you know, I, I do my prayer, I step three prayer every single day, I can't run on my will, I mm. can't have to turn it over every single day. Um, step four, a lot of people don't like step four, I think it's beautiful, yeah, same. I, I think it's beautiful, I think it's freeing, yeah, right. and I think people that have got fear around it, I think they set themselves up to struggle with mm. it. Yeah. Go into it open-minded, you're going to feel free when you walk out there. When you walk out of doing your step four, you're <laughs> free. Um, and yeah, do you know, I kept going through it. I really did keep going through it. And like, step five, I shared it with another person. <laughs> and that person sat there opposite me. <laughs> and they just sort of went, mm, yeah, mm, yeah. And I was like, listen, I'm telling you some deep, <laughs> deep, secret nasty seedy shit here and you're just going yeah yeah where's the reaction mm. i wanted the reaction yeah, i wanted you yeah. to be like oh what the fuck that's horrible <laughs> <laughs> there's no judgment no. Right? there's no judgment you're in a safe space um and i worked all my way i worked my way through the steps my amends was powerful i'm still doing my amends as we speak but my amends were powerful. I sat there and done amends with my mum. My mum shed a tear and she said, the only thing I want is for you to carry on doing what you're doing, to be a good dad, mm. you know, and be the canon that I know you can be. Mm. And that melted me. <laughs> melted me that I had that love, you know, that unconditional love from another person that no matter what, all she wants is for me to be well. Mm. I, lived, I worked this stuff on a daily basis. I had a, my other little girl was born six weeks ago. And I'm present, mm. you know, I'm present today. I'm able to be there and I don't get it right all the time. Mm. I don't, you know, I'm still human. But I'm at peace today. You know, my head don't go and if it does go, I know what to do and I pray and I reach out to other people that have got the same nutty head as me. <laughs> and I laugh about it. Yeah. Because I can do that today. Yeah. I don't have to beat myself up for having these mad wild thoughts mm. about, I don't know, just just crazy stuff, just absolute ludicrous stuff. That if I tell someone who's not allowed it my stuff, they think, no, you deserve to be a mental. <laughs> <laughs> and I probably do. <laughs> but I work it daily. I'm sponsoring, I'm sponsoring other people. I'm passing my message. Unity massive. I've got to speak about unity yeah. because for me, unity is just as important as my prayers and my meditation. Yeah. Getting reaching out to other people that are exactly the same as me with that nutty head that have got something missing in their lives, you know, because that's what it mm. is. With until we find our spirituality and mm. and we start praying and we start meditating and we start getting in touch with our inner selves. Mm. We're lost. Yeah, we really are lost, you know. And, and 
fact that I can speak to other people and bring a bit of peace to their lives mm. that I've got in mind, that's enough for me. Really is enough for me. Um, I don't have a clue what I've spoke about, how long I've spoke for. <laughs> but if you're thinking of giving it a go, all I can say is do it. You've got nothing to lose. If this don't work, and you do a couple of, if you do meetings for a month and you don't like it, but you give it a hundred and ten percent after a month, the dealers are still going to be there. Mm. The shops are still going to be open serving alcohol. The pubs are still going to be there, and the chances are your your so-called mates who you go out and drink and use with, they probably ain't even going to miss you unless you're buying a gear or drinks. <laughs> That's the reality behind yeah, it. Right. Um, well done, Carl. Fucking powerful, mate. I um, I had to laugh when you were talking about <coughs> sharing our thinking. You know, like when I was broken, I just thought I was fucking insane. I thought I was the only one that was insane, you know. And then me and you, we, we can ring each other up and just talk about. <laughs> you rang me the other day talking about a situation, and then you said, oh, "I've just realised that I'm in the wrong," you know. And that's it for for a lot of the time for for me and. For others, you know, the ability to talk about what, what's going on in my fucking head. Because I was always trying to battle that on my own, you know? Uh, oh, just, like you said, the M25. Fucking, there's no way I can deal with all of that on my own. Um, I love when you spoke about the powerlessness of it as well. You know, like you crossed them. Someone said to me before, they on the other, they, didn't, they don't remember the first ever time that they used on a Monday. But once they used on a Monday, Mondays were... Fair game. fair game then yeah. and it's the same what you said you know I think all of us think I'm never going to do that I'm never going to do that and if you're anything like me you fucking will yeah. and you and you probably there's, there's that you, you spoke about it we can get off this journey at any point that we want can't we but it's probably not until we're a few years past the point where we could have stopped that we realise we want to and we can't and thank god this programme exists um what do you <laughs> that was another thing that made me laugh when you said you walked into a meeting and everyone look, looks fucking right as rain I'm Brand thinking what's going on now Brand I'm expecting like toothless hags <laughs> homeless people yeah. you know and, it, and it's nothing like that it's nothing like oh. that so what would you say to someone who was thinking about going to their first meeting they go to they go on where to find and, and they're, they're at that point where they're just terrified to step over the threshold of a meeting from my experience don't worry about how you look mm. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry about how you look because you're going to be welcome with open arms yeah. either way you know and it is hard I remember the first meeting I went to I sort of floated around outside for a bit like a ghost and I walked past and I walked back and in the end someone went are you here for a meeting and I was like on the spot. <laughs> yeah is this a meeting <laughs> but yeah go, go do you know what if you go open mindedly to a meeting mm. you know you don't even have to go in the room no. to feel connected yeah. and feel welcome. Go yeah. outside and just stand there yeah. and listen, hear the laughter, yeah. hear the people joking and look at the smiles on people's faces because all of them people have been where, where you, you are. Were. Yeah, exactly. Broken. Yeah. I love that. Like When you turn up and people are laughing and they're cuddling you out and you're conniving number, that's fuck off, mate. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want? You know what I mean? And then the next day you get a text, how are you? Yeah. How's your day? How are you feeling? Like, what? Who's this? What does he want? Exactly, what does he want? Exactly that. And that was my that was my thinking and my attitude. I thought it was all set up for me. All these people were hired actors. <laughs> <laughs> the building's fine on me. Do you know what I mean? And 
the reality, man, was that like you, I was fucking insane and broken and deluded. And today I've got an opportunity to. It's a beautiful process. What would you say if, out of all the steps, was there one that had the most profound effect on you? Would you have said or step five? Yeah. 100% yeah. sharing all of that dark yeah. CD ludicrous mental stuff mm. with someone else yeah, was so freeing yeah. so freeing you know I felt like I walked in there 25 stone and I walked out fire yeah I love that I shed that weight yeah. I had exactly the same experience but <laughs> he said like you're waiting for the judgement and the condemnation <laughs> like where is it then I've been preparing myself for all of this and this there's none of that there's none of that other than the person saying yeah I've done that mm. I've done that myself and when you see that the reality it does just it just dissolves all of that fear and all of that shit and all of that you know I was so terrified of being humiliated you know the book talks about it we do these humiliating things and then we wait to be discovered and once you get all that shit off your chest and you realise the other person still loves you regardless you know you can start to love yourself mm -hmm. can't you um, you spoke about unity as well and I think that's something I learned a lot of from you. Like you, you other people are important to you, aren't they? In your yeah, recovery. Nice. Speak a little bit about that for me. Helping other people and checking in on them. Do you know what? I, I firmly believe that, and we say it, and I say it every day, the less I'm in myself, you know, mm. the more I can care about others. Mm. You know, and, and speaking to other people gets me out of myself. If I'm feeling shit, yeah. the best medicine for me today is one, I pray, and secondly, I'll pick up that phone. Yeah. And I don't pick up the phone to someone and go, I'm having a shit day. <laughs> yeah. This is what's happening for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I go, how are you? Yeah. <laughs> how are you today? Yeah, you know? process, I it? don't I don't consume myself with myself yeah. anymore. Yeah. And I can pick up the phone and I can go, you're right, you're struggling. And if they are, I can be there. And if they're not, I'll have a laugh and a joke with them on that yeah. phone call. And even that's going to lift me up. Yeah. I think this whole, huge. this whole process is so clever, like not just from a spiritual perspective to get you to this spiritual awakening, but uh, from a psychological perspective as well. Because like you just explained, like when I'm fucking full of self-pity and, and everything and woe is me, like I'm the most important thing in the world and, and I'm trapped in that. Mm. But when I ring someone else and I ask how they are, it's almost by proxy. Like yeah. 20 minutes later, I'm thinking, well, I ain't thought about no marketing <laughs> shit for the last 20 minutes, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and there's a byproduct to that. I also feel good because I've helped someone else. Mm. And it's just every sort of step of this process is designed to, like you come to a meeting, you get a service commitment. It might just be putting out the chairs. But every week you're required to be there. So you've got a responsibility now. You've got a little bit of purpose. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Then you might get a week clean and then you've got a responsibility to the person that's just walked in. And it's clever how every step of the way it just builds your responsibility and gives you a purpose and makes you feel more useful and builds your self-esteem. It's... And, uh, and with that brings the unity you yeah. know? when you go to the same meeting every week mm. you sort of become like a little family yeah, you know what yeah. I mean and, and when you don't go to that meeting your phone's going oh how are you are you mm. feeling alright and it's beautiful because mm. in no other world or universe would putting 30 addicts in a room together <laughs> work <laughs> it wouldn't work no. but it does you know yeah. we all love each other we all care for each other mm. and, and I think above all else we all have a genuine, genuine connection yeah, cool. that we would never find in the world. No, like never. Shared, shared the, the, the cement of having shared in a common fucking peril, do you know what I mean? Like the terrifying realisation when I, when I want to stop taking drugs that I can't fucking stop. Mm. I thought I could and now I can't and now I'm in big trouble, you know? And I, I love that as well. Like if you see a newcomer in a room, 
I always say to them, oh, welcome to the madhouse, welcome to the family, because <laughs> you know that if they continue to do the rounds, they're going to bump into us, because yeah. we're all, we are like a community, like a family, aren't we? Yeah. There's that sense of togetherness and belonging. Um, oh, working with other people, trying to give this away to someone else, how does that feel? What does that do for you? You rang me the other day after you worked with your sponsor, you this feels good. <laughs> <laughs> It's really it nice, is. doesn't it? It's a be- it is a beautiful feeling. Mm. That, in, that in itself, yeah. passing itself to someone else who's trying to recover from that hopeless state of mind and body. Someone that's broken. And they don't have to be broken. Mm. Oh, they might just come in here and think I've had enough. Mm. Um, but doing that and working with them, just seeing at the end of that, whether it's you're doing the first session with them or, yeah. or you're doing the last session with them, you know, just every step of the way you just see that little glimmer in their eyes <laughs> um, yeah. and it might be my ego but your ego sometimes oh they're really getting it it's beautiful to know that not only have you saved another person mm. the way i look at it now is that i'm saving someone else's son someone yeah. else's brother yeah. you know, someone that. else's partner someone yeah. else's dad yeah you know and, and by getting that person free they're opening up to their family and yeah. it's like a flower opening, yeah. do you know what I mean? Because everyone else is getting to Anything. enjoy that person yeah. again. I love which that. Which is beautiful. And the same and the, and by the same token, it's like when I was a, when I was using and, and in the madness, my life had no purpose at all and I couldn't understand all the pain and the suffering I was causing other people. And then when you get well and you help other people, it's almost as though all of the pain and suffering was worthwhile in a sense because you've now been able to help someone else, you know, and it, and it's, it all seems to make sense to a certain degree. You know, I know today I was born to be an addict mm. and to try and help other addicts. I, I, I wrestled with that for so long. Once I surrendered to it and, and got through the work, I was able to fucking try and do a little bit of good in the world, you know. Um, you spoke about relapse as well, and I think that's important because I had fucking multiple relapses that lasted years. Like I come in the room, they talk about God, talk about the book, and I think, oh fuck <laughs> off. And I go out and I'd use for a couple of years, then I'd creep back and it'd be the same motherfuckers <laughs> looking well. And then they talk about being an addict, and my mind would go, oh, I'd get a couple of weeks. I'd get a couple of weeks, and then my mind would say, oh, you're not really an addict, you'll be all right. Just have one drink. And like you, drinking was never my thing. But I know today that I, I'm an alcoholic yeah. once I have one. Um, but what would you say like the perils or warning other people that might be in recovery or new to recovery about what you might have done wrong before you read that? Do exactly as suggested to you, you know, and, and I can only speak from my experience here. The reason that I relapse is because I put stuff down, yeah. you know, and um, we've got a little WhatsApp group going and I put on here the other day, you know, that I can sit in a meeting, I sat in a meeting on on Friday and I really had a long, hard thought about, about when I went out there and relapsed and it all started with my head saying, you don't need to do a Zoom meeting tonight. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to leave my house. No. I could have sat there with my pants and my camera. <laughs> I didn't have to do anything. No. I just had to yeah. press a couple of buttons on a screen and sit and do a meeting. Mm. But my head was going, no, you don't need one. Yeah. And that's how this stuff gets yeah. you. Cunning and baffling. Yeah, it will come for you. Mm. And then it all slips from there. Yeah. You know, oh, I'm not doing a meeting tonight. Then I'm not doing a meeting this week. Yeah. And then the next week, you know, I ain't done a meeting for two months. Yeah, man. But life's still good, you know. I'm convincing myself <laughs> that life's still good. Yeah. And I, I don't know about anyone else, but when when I if I'm in when I was in recovery and things were going well, 
when I left recovery and started to do it on my own, I still had this tunnel vision, right? And the only way I can describe it is like you're in a massive house that's burning down around you, mm. but you're looking through binoculars through the one window you can see sunshine in. You cannot <laughs> see anything yeah. else going on around that's, you. That's an interesting analogy. Everything yeah. is burning down Falling around me. shit and you can't even see it. But I couldn't see it. Yeah, wow. I really couldn't see it. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I, I, I think... Um, I mean, for me, like, I'm battling my ego every day. The, the, the ego is fucking the devil, do you know what I mean? And that's, that's how it's going to get me, like you said. And, and I realised today, the only reason why I'm clean and sober today is because I've got a, a daily reprieve, right? Dependent on my fit spiritual condition. Because if I don't do the programme and I'm full of fucking anger and I'm full of resentment, sooner or later, I'm going to use, you know? Um, but it brought it home to me when I see my ex-dealer down the gym I think I was about 18 months clean and sober and I see him and he's telling me all of his bullshit but because I'm in a good spiritual place I don't want to know but put me in that circumstances after I've had three weeks of resentment and three weeks of anger and three weeks of not talking about how I feel and my head's 100 miles an hour I'm going to want to shut that up you know so I think the fact that we do this stuff every day is for me consistency is like it's, key. it's been absolutely key because I've had periods in the past where I've had a few months, and like you, I'd have the thought, oh, you don't need to go to a meeting today. You'd be all right, Bob. You've been at loads of meetings. <laughs> <laughs> you know what they're going to say. Do you know what I mean? And then before I know it, I'm two weeks without a meeting, and, and I want to punch someone, or I'm getting fucking irritable, restless, and discontent as well, you know? I just want to add something to that as well, right? Yeah. Like we said, it's a slippery path, and I've got the mindset today of what I do today not keep me clean tomorrow yeah, and what I've done yesterday didn't keep me clean today yeah. and I have to do this stuff religiously yeah. religiously daily and I have to do it every day and when I say religiously I don't mean you have to find Allah or Jesus or Krishna <laughs> or whatever God it is out there but as long as you get higher power and you stick to a daily routine yeah. that when you wake up you do certain certain things to start your day right and stick to it. Yeah. Do you know, we used to have chats at the beginning, and I used to be like, "Yeah, but oh, what like every day?" And you're like, "Yeah, but after a while, it becomes ingrained in you." We had another chat. I think it was a couple of days ago, and I said it's mental because the way you wake up in the morning and go for a piss, you know, your body's set to do that internally. Yeah. You're set to do that. Everyone does it. Yeah. Wake up in the morning, go to the toilet. Yeah. Set your alarm for four o'clock every morning. Go to the toilet. Go back to bed. You're not going to wake up and need a toilet. Yeah. Do you know, because you're changing that pattern. Yeah. For me, waking up now, praying, meditating, and reaching out to others, mm. it's who I am. Yeah. It's part of yeah, me now. Do you know, that. I can't not do it. No. I don't feel right if I don't do it. Yeah, like um, that. yeah. That's how I'd describe this stuff as well now. It's a, it's a way of life for me. Mm. It's just taught me... Like, I always thought, I just need a fucking instruction book on how to live <laughs> life. So I'm just giving me an instruction book on what to give in any circumstance what to do in any given situation, I'll be all right. Or if you just give me a PA who can deal with all my paperwork, <laughs> I'll be all right. And the reality was that I needed something to, to show me how to start my morning and to start my day because my head's fucking insane before I even wake up. And by the time I finish doing my morning routine, I'm a completely different person, you know, than the one that used to just come to fucking run out the door like a lunatic. Like, no wonder I couldn't manage my life and my emotions. Like, I need... Mornings are important to me to have a bit of time and space. Um, yeah, how would you... Um, 
We're all 21 for the future now, Carl. How do you see the future going now? Because we're all quite content people, so this is why I like to ask this question, because mm. so many people are content with their life now. Like, they don't really want for anything. Do you know what? I'll There's no, like, grand, grandeur ideas of, I'm going to no. do this, I'm going to do that. People just like, I'm happy every day. Do you know what? If you'd asked me that question even eight months ago, it was... I was in my own ass. <laughs> Brand new Range Rover sitting on the driveway, mm. you know, a food full of fridge, a food, the, a fridge full of food, a cupboard full of food, mm. and like hundred grand in my bank, mm. you know, to be able to do what I want when I wanted to do it. Mm. Um, today it's not. No. Today it's not. Um, to be able to sit, to sit in my own head, that's all I want. Mm. I'm at peace with that. If <laughs> I can help another person. Even if I can only help one person a week, that's mm. enough for me. Mm. That really is enough for me. I don't care about the car drive no more. No. I don't always get this stuff right, do you know? And if you want to know how well my programme really works, go and ask my missus. <laughs> <laughs> She's probably going to listen to this and go, you're not fucking at peace all the time. <laughs> um, True, though. But I try. Exactly. And, and that's all I can do yeah. is what I can try. And mm. For the future, what do I want? I mean, being in recovery allows me to be the best father I can be, mm. the best son, do you know what I mean, the best version of me that I can possibly be. And as long as my stick in recovery, whatever else is meant to happen is meant to happen. Yeah, I'm just rolling with it. Fucking amen. Beautiful stuff. I think we'll leave it there, Carl. What a fucking powerful message to someone that might be out there still suffering. You know, if that's you, if you are worried, if you are concerned, then please get yourself to a meeting. There's a a brand new life on offer for you. See you next time. God bless. Love you loads. Do you love them, Cal? Love you. Love you, <laughs> See you next time. We may refer to the source by different names. God, a higher power, the Holy Spirit, or perhaps the cosmos. This source is the entire universe.